0: If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to the book of Hebrews. We are in Hebrews chapter 1. If you're using the church Bible, you'll find that on page 1001. And we are looking this morning at verses 4 through 14, Hebrews 1, 4 through 14. And as usual, I know you're going to find it helpful to have a copy of scripture open and reading along there carefully, especially this morning. We've got seven Old Testament quotes down in this chapter. And so you're going to want to be attentive to the scriptures. You're going to want to be looking, considering what's being said. It's the only way you're going to benefit from this sermon if you do. And so I want to encourage you to be doing that. This is our second sermon in a series we started last week on Hebrews. And the big point is that Jesus is better. If you summed up the book of Hebrews, if you had to take a, an ordination exam and uh, somebody said, as I was asked, what's the book of Hebrews about? Jesus is better what the book of Hebrews is about. He's better than the angels. He's better than Joshua. He's better than Moses. He's better than the temple. He provides a better rest. Uh, He brings a better sacrifice, a better covenant, and prepares a better city for his people. That's the book of Hebrews. Jesus Christ is better. Don't depart from him. And so this morning, we're going to look at verses 4 through 14, the first comparison about how Jesus is better. And before we do read this, let's go to God again in prayer and ask that he would be with us. And help us this morning. Father, as a congregation, we lift up our voices to you and our prayers ascend to you, and we acknowledge that we are nothing, and that unless you um, establish us by your grace and unless you speak powerfully the truth of your Son, and you open the eyes of our hearts to see, and you grant that inner illumination, we will leave this place unchanged. And so, Father, we ask that what we do now, you would bless in such a way that it would have ramifications into eternity. We pray that you would make us eternally minded, knowing that we are breaths away from your throne, and from Judgment Day, and from Christ We pray, O Lord Jesus, that you would be exalted and heard and seen and loved and believed on. We pray that you would be present with us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. After telling us that Jesus, who is God, who made everything, who sustains everything, made purification for our sins by himself... God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness or righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God... Your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And he says to the son, you Lord laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. To which of the angels... As he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, this week I was walking through Kroger and an alarm went off. And lights started flashing. I was in the produce aisle. I got scared. I was like, what's going on? And then a guy jumped up and started calling everybody to gather around. And it was a guy giving away free knives and telling everybody how great these ginseng knives were. And, and I sat there for a few minutes. I, I was re- regretting it. I was like, why am I standing here listening to this? And in the course of his conversation, he held up a knife and he said, how many of you had this ginseng knife? And one lady was like, oh, I have it. I have it. Another lady said, I've got that too. How long have you, I've had it for 10 years, I've had it for 20 years. And then he pulled out another one and he said, see, this one will get dull, this one's much better. And his whole presentation was built on comparing and saying this is better. And as I thought about this text and I thought about the really insignificant incident at Kroger and I thought about life, I realized we are a people who love to compare, Actually, if you stop to think about it, we compare athletes, we compare musicians, we compare movie stars, we compare politicians, we compare houses, we compare cars, we always want something better. We always say, this person's better. We get in arguments about it. I have heard and have been a part of in my life, foolish arguments over which, which athlete is better, or which musician is better, which guitarist is better, which politician has a better policy, what's better? We want better things. We want what is best. And I think that's because we have been created in a world where there is hierarchy and there are beings that are better than other beings and that Jesus is the better being, better than every other being, and that only when he's compared to what being might be even close to him do we even start to realize how much better Jesus is. And so the writer of Hebrews opens by comparing Jesus, not with Moses, first and foremost, not with Joshua, not with one of the other prophets, but with the angels. Now, that's important because if you were a Jew, and you get this when you read the Gospels, you you see this so clearly, the Jews were always categorizing prophets. Are you greater than Abraham? Are you better than Moses, Jesus? Are you better than our father, Abraham? Are you better than Jacob that gave us this well? They were constantly comparing religious leaders that God had given them in the Old Testament, and... I think that carried over. Now we have Jewish converts. We have a church full of former Jews who did not believe on Jesus, who now are believing that he is the Messiah, the Redeemer. And there are dangers because in this culture, there are still many Jews who are emphasizing how great angels are. We do that to some extent here, but we make it really hokey. And we had Michael Landon play an angel in Highway to Heaven. And it was really terrible. They did it in a much more spiritual sense. Angels were significant to Jews. They were very significant. And so it's fitting that when we come to this chapter, all of a sudden, almost unexpected, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus made purification for sin. He atoned for sin by his bloody death. He rose from the dead. He sat down on the throne of God, and he's better than angels. He's better than the angels. And so what the writer's doing is, I think the writer is looking out and seeing what people think about things religiously and they're saying, there is nothing in the spiritual world greater than an angel except for God. Jesus is God. Jesus is better than an angel. And that's important because Jesus was also man. And there's a hierarchy. The greatest being of which there's none greater is God. God. And then there are angels who are greater than you and me in power and glory. And then there's man, and Jesus was a man. And so in the first century, in the early church, there were tons of heresies about who Jesus was, Nestorianism, Arianism, uh, Gnosticism. There were all these different things. and, And in all of them, the common thread is they rejected the deity of Jesus. They said, well, Jesus was really great. He's a lot like an angel, but he's not God. He's not the God. He's not the ever-existing, eternal God. And so that's why when we read the Gospel of John and Hebrews and 1 John and the whole of the New Testament, the point is Jesus is the God. He is Yahweh. He is very God of very God. He is better than the angels. And so this morning we're going to see several things. First, we're going to see in what way... Jesus is pronounced to be better than the angels and then secondly why he's better than the angels just those two things in what way he's pronounced to be better than the angels and why he's better we'll notice that what the writer tells us in verse 4 is that in his resurrection and ascension so once Jesus came once he conquered Satan once he defeated death once he atoned for sin he rose from the dead he ascended to heaven he sat down on God's throne that's going to be by the way from verse 3, having sat down on the throne of the majesty on high, from verse 3 to the end of the chapter, it's about Jesus sitting on the throne of God. Every Old Testament quote is going to be about him sitting on the throne. God's throne. Ruling all things. Controlling all things. Creating you and controlling you. Ordering everything. He is sitting on the throne of God. He is sitting on the majesty on the throne of the majesty on high, and notice what the writer says, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than they. Now, that may be confusing. You may say, I don't understand that. How does his name uniquely make him better than the angels? Well, I think when you go through this, and notice there that first quote in verse 5, for to which of the angels did God, that is the Father, ever say, you are my son? Now, the writer is actually leaving the door open for some kind of hierarchy with angels, for to which of the angels. Maybe there are archangels, maybe there are others. We know very little about angels biblically. There's actually not a whole lot. And the writer seems to be leaving open that there could even be some angels that are greater than other angels, but he says, which of those angels did he ever say, you are my son? The name, the name that Jesus has and the name that is pronounced by which He is better than the angels, is the name of the Son of God. Never are angels called the Son of God. Sometimes they are called sons of God, illustratively, but they are never called the Son. Never does God say to an angel, you are my son. Jesus is the Son of God. Now, there's two ways that Jesus is the Son of God. There's two ways. You may say, really? I thought there was only one way. He is the Son of God by eternal generation. That means he was always the Son. He is the eternal Son of God. As long back as you could ever imagine in your finite mind eternity, Jesus has been the Son. Never had a beginning. Always one with his Father. The Father was the Father. The Son was the Son. The Spirit was the Spirit. The Trinity lived in unbroken fellowship (laughs) with, with each other, with himself, in himself. And Jesus was the eternal Son of God. Begotten, not made. He wasn't created. It is by virtue of his divine nature. But there's another sense. Romans 1, 3, and 4 says that he was declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And so once Jesus atoned for our sins, defeated death, and destroyed the devil at Calvary... He rose from the dead, and in his resurrection, he is proclaimed and declared to be the Son of God with power. In a new way, the God-man was exalted, glorified, and pronounced to be the Son, so that what the writer is saying in verse 5, look there in verse 5, you'll see that indented quote, you are my son, he's quoting Psalm 2. David wrote that. A 1,000 years before Jesus came. Psalm 2, God the Father says to the Son, A 1,000 years before Jesus is born, the Father says to the Son, you are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Now you may say, what day? Today. What does he mean today? When was today? What, What time? When was Jesus begotten of the Father? And I think the answer is in the resurrection, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power. This is actually quoted by Paul in Acts chapter 13 and he links it to the resurrection he says when Jesus stepped out of the tomb God the Father essentially was saying to the world this is my sin atoning death defeating victorious conquering son and every knee is going to bow to him and every tongue is going to profess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father and that now the man Christ Jesus the man has a better name than the angels Now, this is where the mystery of the Incarnation is so important because when we talk about the Son in his deity as God, he is always the Son. But in his humanity, Jesus, because of his perfect work, because of his perfect life and his atoning death and resurrection, he gets that covenantal pronouncement that he is God's Redeemer Son that God has begotten. And notice that that David, that The writer of Hebrews also links it to the Davidic covenant. Notice the next quote. There's actually seven quotes in this chapter from the Old Testament. The second quote is, I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. Now, when God came to David and he made the covenant with David, he told David, I'm going to make you a kingdom. You're going to be really great. Your son's going to sit on the throne and you're going to have a son that sits on your throne forever. That's Jesus. It's ultimately not Solomon. It's not one of the other kings of Israel. That's Jesus. God says to David, I will be a father to the ultimate son that's going to come from you. He is going to sit on the throne forever. In the resurrection, Jesus receives that privilege to himself. Now, I want to say two things before coming back to this. The first is, you may be sitting there thinking, man, this is a lot of theology. Why don't you just tell me what to do? Because God doesn't just tell you what to do. God gives you seven Old Testament quotes and expects you to look and say, what is he saying? Why is he going to these passages of scripture? What is he teaching here? Why has the Holy Spirit inspired this? And I want to say this. What I think we learn from these seven quotes in Hebrews 1 is that the Old Testament is about Jesus. Now listen carefully. Not just in that it talks about Jesus, but that God the Father speaks to Jesus in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, in certain parts, is not just about Jesus in that it talks about him and tells you he's coming, but that God the Father is actually having a dialogue with his son in the Old Testament before Jesus comes. Notice, look at that first quote out of Psalm 2. You are my son. Who's talking? God the Father. Who's he speaking to? The Son, You are my son, today I have begotten you. A thousand years before Jesus is born, God the Father is speaking in scripture to his son. And then notice in verse eight, one of the most powerful scripture proofs about the deity, the godness of Jesus. Notice this, it should actually be translated, but to the son, verse eight, but to the son, he, that's God the Father, says, your throne, O God. The father's talking, and he says to the son, your throne, O God. God has a God. God has a God. He's speaking in the persons of the Godhead. The father is saying to the son, you are God. That's from Psalm 45. Almost all these are out of the Psalms. Um, notice what the Father says to the Son in verse 10. The Father is still speaking. And quoting Psalm 102, notice verse 10, and now this Old Testament quote, you, Lord, the Father says to the Son, you, Jehovah, In the beginning laid the foundations of the earth. God the Father is speaking not to you first and foremost in all of these scriptures, but to his Son. And we are stepping back and we are hearing this divine dialogue. It's almost like eavesdropping at somebody's table at a restaurant. And they're having a conversation. And the one person's telling the other person how great they are. And the other person's receiving it. And they're telling them, you're wonderful. You're the best. Nobody's better than you. And then you realize you've been brought into a dialogue in the Godhead. And that the Father's saying, you, Jesus, you are God. You are Lord. You made the heavens and the earth. You sit on the throne. You are my son. And what you start to realize is that the way many of us have read the Bible in the past, and especially the Old Testament, has probably been wrong. And that we've missed a whole lot of Jesus. And that we haven't adequately eavesdropped on the dialogue going on between the Father and the Son. And the reason that's important is because we as Christians, the most foundational thing about us is not that we can rattle off how to have a better marriage. It's not that we can talk about social justice and stopping sex trafficking and get in debates over homosexuality. The most foundational thing about us as Christians is that we believe that Jesus is God and that we trust him as the Savior because he is a perfectly... Divine being who's satisfied for our sins. and the reason we believe that is because of Psalm 2, Davidic covenant, Psalm 45, Psalm 102. And then notice the last one I want to point out in verse 13, "To which of the angels has He, God the Father ever said, "Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet." And notice there, that's out of Psalm 110. You have to work with the scriptures. You have to. I know. You're like, oh, another one. You have to. God wants you to. He gave us minds to use them to understand his word. Psalm 110, he says, Jehovah, the Lord, said to Adonai, my Lord. The Father said to the Son, sit at my right hand. Now, what I'm saying here is that all of those things and especially the sonship of Jesus is what makes him greater than the angels. And that's important because Christianity is built on who the Son of God is. It's built on the name of the Son of God. It's impossible to be a Christian and not to know the name of the Son of God. It's impossible to be a Christian and not to know that there is an eternal son who has finished the work of redemption and been proclaimed the eternal son. Now, secondly, and I've already touched on this, how is he better? Well, I've already said this. He's God. He's God. He's better than the angels because he's God. Now, if you read the Gospels, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you ought to say, okay, you're saying Jesus is God, But from his birth to his resurrection, he's surrounded with angels, and he doesn't look greater than the angels. Angels pronounce his birth to the shepherds. Gabriel comes to Mary. Angels seem to have this really prominent place in the life of Jesus um, when he is... An infant and Herod wants to kill Jesus, he's protected by angels. An angel goes to Joseph and says, Take the child, go down into Egypt. Angels protect Jesus at his birth. And then during his ministry, Jesus is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he's tempted, the Bible says angels came and ministered to him. That he looks lower than the angels. An angel. Angels had to come and strengthen Jesus's hand after he withstood the devil's temptations. He doesn't look greater than the angels in those situations. And it's not honest for us to say, yeah, he does. He looks lower than the angels. Um, Finally, it was angels that rolled away his stone at the tomb when he lay dead and then was raised and came out, angels rolled away and then angels met the disciples and angels were there at the ascension and angels were telling his disciples where he was and what was going to happen and angels were always accompanying the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus even said at the Garden of Gethsemane, he said to his disciples, can I call 12 legions of angels to come down and help us? And so, When you read the life of Jesus, he seems to be lower than the angels. Then we come to this passage and we go back to the Old Testament and we're like, oh, wait, he's more than a man. He's God. He's God. And he's better than the angels because he is God and man. And God the Father has told us about the deity of Jesus. And that's important because if we are a Christian church, that's what this church is built on. Jehovah's Witnesses believe he was an angel. They think he's Michael the Archangel. Mormons think he's an angel, that he was Satan's brother. They are not Christians. They're not Christians. That's not Christianity. If you reject the deity of Jesus, you are not a Christian. If you think he's less than God, you will not be saved. If the Jesus you trust in is not the Jesus of Hebrews 1, you have another Jesus. That's why this is so significant. And we need to be reminded of it. We need to be reminded of it. Our faith is grounded in this. The great danger of the Hebrews was to drift away. I said that last week. The danger of this book was to leave Jesus and go back to Judaism, go back to the sacrificial system, go back to the temple. The danger for us is to go out into churches that entertain us or that do ritualistic Christianity for us and not have a relationship with Jesus. That's the danger for us, to depart from Jesus by going to entertainment or ritual. We have very different dangers than the early Christians had. They were being persecuted for believing in Jesus, and the danger was to go back to a, a ritualistic religion that didn't have as much persecution. Do you understand that? There's da- if you don't think there's dangers for you, you desperately need to read this book. There are dangers for all of us. Christianity is like, it's a narrow path. Jesus said, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many go in. It's easy. Narrow is the way that leads to life and difficult. The narrowness is the narrowness of the deity of Jesus. The narrowness is the narrowness of the God nature of the Son, who is superior to the angels. Now listen to this. If if Jesus is better than the angels, and angels are very powerful, and we're actually told about angels at the end of this chapter, that they exist to serve you and to help me. We're actually told that angels exist to minister to those who are going to inherit eternal life, to protect them, to serve them in different ways. I don't, I don't understand everything about angels. I've never seen an angel. I don't really want to see an angel to i in heaven. I'd be afraid if I saw an angel. Probably think it was a hallucination. They exist to serve us. If they exist to serve us, how much more should we see salvation and satisfaction and security in the one who is better than the angels, who is the head of the church, who is the captain of our salvation. The son is better than the angels. The son has everything that you need. Everything you need is in Jesus Christ. Everything. All power for every provision of life. I mean... Do you, lack, do, you, do you have financial struggles? Jesus doesn't exist to make you rich, but he will provide for you if you trust him. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's the heir of everything. He gets everything. He made everything. He can provide everything. He has in himself everything you need spiritually. Now, this is amazing. Look at this. Notice what God the Father says in verse 6. Because when he's telling us about how Jesus is better, what makes him better, that he is God. Notice this in verse 6. When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Now, that's from Psalm 97. You can ask me after if you didn't jot them all down. Psalm 97, angels worship Jesus. Now, if angels worship Jesus, you should worship Jesus. If angels fall down and give him glory, you and I should be in the practice of worshiping Jesus. That's why that's written. That, if you ask me, what's the cash value of angels worship Jesus? Okay, here, he's not an angel. He deserves all worship and honor. He doesn't refuse worship because he's God. You should be worshiping him. Every time we come to the scriptures and you're like, I've heard this, I've heard this from Nick a thousand times. Good, it should be new. It should excite you to worship the Jesus we're gathering to worship. And if that's not happening... If that's not happening in your heart, there's something wrong. If you getting that you exist to worship Jesus is not happening in your heart, and you are not bowing prostrate to him, there is something wrong with your heart. And so we're to look at this and we're to say, well, the angels worship him. I will worship him. Now, there's a little account in Revelation where... The Apostle John is so overcome by the glory of the angels that he sees in his vision that twice he bows down to worship the angels, and the angels say, don't do that. They say, see that you don't do that. They say, we also are servants of God, just like you for the gospel, worship God. Now in Revelation, the angels tell John, worship God. Here, the Apostle tells us angels worship Jesus, Jesus is God. That's a habit you ought to do, by the way, when you read through scripture. Everywhere something's attributed to God and then elsewhere attributed to Jesus, that's intentional. Jesus is God. Worship him. Let me say just a few foundational things as we close. Notice that there's two things said about Jesus as God and as the Redeemer in verse 8 through 12. The first is that as he sits on the throne of God, We're only told, really, one thing about him, that he loves righteousness and he hates sin that Jesus sits on the throne of God, he loves righteousness, and he hates sin. If you belong to Jesus, if you're in him, you should also love righteousness and hate sin. That should be an evidence that you're in Jesus. Do you hate sin? When you sin, do you grieve over it? Do you pray that God gives you a greater hatred for it? Jesus perfectly loved what is right and good and holy and beautiful. And you know what? That's not an austere thing. Don't think of that as something... um, uh, Repressive. Don't think of that as something heavy and burdensome. Think of that as something joyous and good. Everything about God that is holy and right and good is beautiful. It's beautiful. God, the goodness and the righteousness of God is a beautiful thing. And Jesus loved that and he hated sin. He died for sin. He hated sin so much he would bear the punishment of it in his body on the tree. The hymn writer used to say, and I love this, there's an old hymn. It says, ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose its evil great, here at the cross do view its nature rightly, here its evil estimate. If you want to hate sin the way Jesus hated sin, you look at the cross and you realize what he's dying for and what's happening to the son as he's bearing the wrath of God on himself as one who has been constituted a sinner, though he never sinned. Secondly, notice what the writer does in verse 10 through 12. He quotes Psalm 102, and he tells us, and these, I think, are the things that ought to stir us up to worship Jesus even more, that he laid the foundations of the earth, and then, almost as if that's a small thing, that he created the earth, he steps back and he says, and the heavens are the work of your hands. That Jesus laid the foundations of the earth that we're walking on and sitting on right now. And almost as if that's small, he steps back and says, and the heavens are the work of your fingers. Now, He'll go on and he'll tell us in this chapter about God's plan of consummation. He's going to tell us that this world's going to pass away. He's going to tell us that all God's enemies are going to be put under Jesus's feet. Just in case you're sitting there saying, well, I mean, if Jesus is so great, why doesn't it look like everybody's worshiping him? I mean, I have a bunch of friends that don't worship Jesus. There's a lot of wickedness in this world. There's a lot of pain and hurt and evil and sorrow. And he's going to tell us, listen, one day all enemies are going to be put under his feet. One day Jesus is going to take creation off. This is what he says. He says, one day, I'm going to act this out. I'm horrible at acting. This is as close as a drama team you're ever going to get here. He says that one day Jesus is going to take creation off like a garment. Look in your Bible. Turn back to Hebrews. Look there in verse 11 and 12. They will perish. They will all wear old like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Jesus is going to take creation off the universe and the world. He's going to roll it up like a garment and he's going to turn it into something new. Now, the writer of Hebrews wants you to know the betterness of Jesus He wants you to know the betterness of Jesus. And I'm just going to leave you with this one question. What do you delight in? What do you think is great? What thrills your heart? Restaurants, sports, food, fashion, television, movies, traveling, houses. What thrills your heart? Who thrills your heart? Are there people you put on a pedestal around you and think they're just the greatest thing ever? Jesus is infinitely better. And until that sinks down, and let me just say this as lovingly as I can, until that sinks down, our lives will be mundane and we will bear very little fruit as Christians. Can I say that as lovingly to you this morning as I can say? Until that sinks down, your life will be meaningless and insignificant, and you will end up, in the words of John Piper, wasting your life. You will end up wasting your life, and the way not to waste your life is to let the betterness and the supremacy and the glory of Jesus the Son to sink down into the fabric of your mind and your heart, your soul, joints and marrow, and every part of you until you exude that you, like the angels, worship him. Listen, that's that's the only reason we gather together on Sunday. This is useless. It's hot in here. It's hot. We rent this building, set up and breakdown, all kinds of stuff people get bothered by. Why do we do it? Because we worship Jesus. Cuz we give him glory because he is supreme and he satisfies the souls of his people and he's worthy. And one day, let me just say this heaven is going to be a world where everyone will be worshiping the lamb who was slain and will be saying, you are worthy. They will be saying, you are better. You are better. In heaven, nobody's going to argue about who's the best. In any level, everyone will be saying to Jesus, you are better. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we are absolutely dependent on you to make us to see these things. We cannot see them, Lord. They may annoy certain people in this room. They may leave other people feeling burdened. And we pray that the light of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit would be manifested in this place. And that, Father, you would... (laughs) Open our eyes wide to see that Jesus is better than the angels. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would make each and every one in here taste and see that you are good, to know that you are the one that wears creation like a cloak, and that one day every enemy will be put under your feet. Oh, Father, help us to love the truth of Jesus and to worship your Son and to give him the glory that is due to him. We pray these things in his name. Amen.